stupid egg shaker is vital. <laughs> Sets the backbone for the whole thing. Uh, welcome to RUF. Um, my name is Chris. If I don't know you, I would, I would love to. Uh, we really do want RUF. I say this all the time, but maybe you're new and you've never been here before and someone drug you along. Uh, welcome. It's our pleasure to have you. And we do want this to be a place uh, here in l this larger meeting, but also in our small groups and community groups, and when we're just hanging around together doing stuff, a place where you feel like you can be welcomed here regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you believe, that you can be welcomed warmly in this place and investigate the Bible and Jesus and all that stuff that you may have no idea about or you may have been a Christian your whole life. Um, we're just really, really happy to have you here, and I would love to get to know you uh, if that's something that you would be not creeped out by. So, uh, Welcome. We've been studying the book of Ephesians this semester, and uh, if you want to turn there in your Bible, it's in the New Testament, uh, the, the Gospels, and then the book of Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Um, so we're in Ephesians 6 tonight, it's also going to be on the screen. Uh, the other day, you know, speaking of, we have these small groups, and the other day in, a, in one of our small groups, we're, we're talking about how, how to read the Bible, like what is the Bible all about? And so we were looking at like some of the most misused verses in the Bible or passages in the Bible. And it's kind of funny. Um, some of you guys might know them. Some of them might be your life verse. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're that kind of person that has a life verse. We, we, one of them was Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for hope in the future, plans to prosper you. You know, uh, we looked at Romans 8, 28. Which is, uh, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Philippians 4.13, um, I can do all things through, uh, through, uh, through Christ who strengthens me. I think that's Philippians 4.13. Uh, I probably knew that at some point. Um, but th anyway, the reason why we talked about all those and why they're all actually misused is because we use those passages... To um, and, and we think that by them that we're going to have this like really sort of easy life if we become a Christian. That uh, you know the, the Christian life is really a path to me having a comfortable life. Uh, maybe some you grew up in a Christian home and your parents seem to get along relatively well and you have a nice house and everyone you know kind of gets along. And we think that you know that God is promising us that we're going to have this successful, happy. Um, kind of carefree, comfortable life. And I know a lot of you guys are like, okay, I, I don't believe that. Okay, I'm not that person that you're talking about. Uh, but some of us think something like, if I love God first and put God first, then he'll definitely give me the husband that I've been dreaming of that's going to take care of me. Or the wife that I've been dreaming of that is going to meet all of my desires. Or uh, if, I, if I really commit myself to Jesus, then he'll give me a group of friends that are like my lifelong friends. Like I make them right now in college. And this is like our group of six girls, and we can tell each other everything, and like we're all going to be together forever, and like no one can break us up. We're like the Spice Girls or whatever, um, <laughs> who did break up, by the way, so let that be a warning to you. Um, and, on, and like if I could be real for a second, um, I know that some of us live in like what we would call the Christian bubble, like on campus. You know, like some of you guys, we had a Sadie Hawkins dance. There's like obviously a lot more girls than guys. And some girls were like, well, all the guys have been asked in RUF. I'm like, well, ask someone that's not in RUF. And they're like, I don't know someone that's not in RUF. Uh, okay, that's a problem. And if you live in that Christian bubble, 
sometimes we can perpetuate this idea of I'm supposed to be happy, healthy, whole all the time. The Christian life is going to be this easy, comfortable thing for me. But it doesn't take long what you're going to realize when you graduate, those of you that are about to graduate, that if you already don't know that the world is messed up and that like, things are really hard, like if you haven't learned that already, you're about to. Because like all of like your best friends, are, like you're like groomsmen, bridesmaid in their wedding, like half of them are going to get divorced. Okay? Like, their marriages are going to break up. Like, friends fall away. Like, friends will do stuff. You're like, how could they ever possibly do that? And that comes as a shock to some of us sometimes because we don't realize that we are in the middle of a war, that there is a spiritual war going on. There's a great Portishead song called Rhodes. Does anyone listen to Portishead? Nobody. Okay, all right. (laughs) Then none of you care, but it's really good. And, um, you know, she says, like, oh, can't anybody see? We've got a war to fight. Like, there's a war out there waiting for us. And whether we uh, want to admit that that's the case or not, it's happening. And so what Paul's doing in Ephesians 6 here is he's waking us up. This is the very end of the book, and he wants it to be a wake-up call, that there's a war going on outside. If you came to the Christian faith because you thought you were going to have a comfortable and harmonious life, uh, this will not be a very happy passage for you. But let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 10. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which, one can, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am doing, how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, great name, The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you indeed uh, for the incorruptible love that we can have by faith in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for your word, because we need it. Uh, Because things are not right, things are not neutral, Uh, things are hostile, and we need you to show yourself to us in your word. So would you do that Uh, in the reading and the preaching of it? Glorify yourself and do good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the junior prom, I I went um, to it, I had a date, and uh, it was the German exchange student. And uh, she was all, she was she was cute. She was she was very cute. And um, not as cute as my wife, of course, who is here. So, um, 
But anyway, so she was from Germany. She was from Hamburg. And I remember after the prom, I don't know what everyone else was doing, but we were like just talking, hanging out. And, um, and she was telling me about her grandfather that had died in World War II. And so, but she's from Germany, right? So then it's like this awkward question, like... <laughs> And I didn't want to ask, but I wanted to know, because I had never known anyone that was, like, you know, Nazi family. And so, um, so I said, like, fighting, like, for the Nazis? She was like, no. God. I was like, okay, well, that's good. Because I didn't want to say later that I went out with this girl that was, her grandfather was a Nazi. Um, so then I said, okay, cool. Like, was he, like, fighting, like, for the Allies? Like, that seems kind of, like, fun in, like, a movie. And uh, she was like, no. He just died in World War II. Like, by that, she means, like, just by the, like, just by living in Germany, like, he died, like, was killed. And, um, not that he just died of natural causes in World War II. Um, that is how that kind of came across. Um, he was killed in World War II. Um, and the, it, it surprised me, because, like, I, I've never was, was thinking, like, Wars happen, like, on people's, like, people, whether they want to be in the war or not, get killed. Like, there are casualties of war where war is taking place. And Paul's right in this church, and he's like, he's telling them, look, this amazing thing has been happening in Jesus, where literally Jesus Christ is uniting the whole universe and redeeming mankind and, like, banishing the powers of darkness, right? Um... And Paul, at the end of this letter, he's been telling them all about this wonderful thing and how it should change their lives. And at the end, he goes, finally, like when he says finally there, really what that means is like, henceforth, be aware. Because the devil isn't going away quietly. If you think that Jesus is just going to fix the whole universe and the powers of evil are just going to be like, okay, do whatever you want. That's not the case. They are fighting back and I don't want you to be caught off guard. Don't be fooled. Um, the question for us, as it was for the Ephesian believers in the first century, isn't, is there a war going on? The question is, what do we do about the war that's going on all around us, though it is unseen? And Paul is saying, in the midst of spiritual warfare, Christians must stand firm. So uh, let's, let's look at the, at the war. I want to look at three aspects of the war. I want to look at the enemy, the armor, of course. You saw that coming. And the winning tactics. So first, the enemy. Uh, it's important to, to, to remember at the outset, like not to forget the beginning of the book. The point of the book of Ephesians is like, look, Jesus wins. Like, I'll tell you the end of the story from the beginning. Jesus wins the war. The outcome of the war is not uh, at stake. Jesus is going to win. He has resurrected people from the dead. He's putting everything back together and Ephesians 1 says, even now, Jesus is on the throne, and literally everything in the universe is under his feet. He is the rightful king on the throne, and this war is not going to be won by anyone but Jesus. Because when he died and he was resurrected, he declared to the world, it's over. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant it. The war is over. Um, there's a great line we're going to sing for all the saints at the end, but we're not going to sing this line. I don't know why we don't, probably because it has like 30 stanzas. Um, but he goes, and when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, 
and arms are strong. Hallelujah. We live now sort of in a place where the war has been won, but the battles are still taking place. You know what I mean? It's like the word hasn't fully gotten out. If you were sort of engaged in the trenches and then the word sort of came out on a loudspeaker, the war is over. It doesn't just stop. Everyone's all like, man, all right, I guess I'll go. I mean, it doesn't end like that. The war still has to be played out to the end. Uh, And so in a sense, the war is finished, but we're engaged in this mop-up duty. Um, I, I heard a story recently of a Japanese soldier, uh, Hiroki, you have to tell me I'm going to butcher his name, Hiru Onada. Does that sound like a real name? No, you don't know. Okay, no. Um, Hiroki's from Japan, so he knows these things. Um, but he, he, was, he was a soldier in the Japanese army during World War II, and they put him in the Philippines on a distant island in the Philippines to do sort of guerrilla warfare and to spy on the enemy, right? Uh, that was in 1944, but like, the war ended in 1945. But he did not know that that was the case. And he lived on this island until 1974. So literally 30 years later, he was engaged still in the war. People would tell him that the war is over, and he didn't believe them. It was his job to not believe them and to continue to fight. He just died uh, this past year. Um, For him, the war was not over. He did not know that it was over, and he was unwilling to give up fighting. And that is how the enemy is that Paul is talking about here. Evil is still raging on. Jesus has won. The outcome is sure. But evil is not going to give up without a fight. Now, you might be here and you're like, this whole talk of evil is silly, right? Um, There's no such thing as evil. It's just brain chemistry. You know, there's there's actually, I was reading... I was reading some research, which means I looked at like two articles on the internet, um, which is about as much as anyone does, if we're honest. Um, and talking about researchers are trying to, you know, in sort of the, you know, the scientific world, they're trying to find a material scientific explanation for everything. So there are no, you know, immaterial forces, spiritual forces. There just has to be a real scientific reason for it. So they're trying to find the scientific reason, like, is there such a thing as evil? Or is it just poorly developed frontal lobe or bad brain chemistry or whatever? And they're kind of leaning towards that. People don't make evil decisions. They just have bad brain chemistry. My brain made me do it. Um, But even Christopher Hitchens, you guys know who Chris Hitchens was? He recently died. He was an atheist thinker and writer. He was a brilliant writer. He recently died, sadly, of cancer. He He was a wonderful thinker and writer. But he was strongly a strong atheist. And he wrote about the September 11th bombing uh, uh, disaster a lot. And um, he wrote an obituary for Osama bin Laden after he died. He, he was an Englishman living in America and was very, uh, like, more upset than most Americans were about September 11th. And he wrote this obituary for Osama bin Laden, and he called him evil in the obituary, which, of course, he doesn't believe in evil. So he said, you know, I had a hard time, and this is not the word that I wanted to use, But really, whatever force was motivating this man to do this, the only thing that you could call it is evil. Uh, There's something inside of us, regardless of how we feel about how the world works, that inherently understands that evil is a thing. Will was just telling me about infants being able to cheat, like, can tell between good and evil in a puppet show. You know, this is a new study. Like, three-month-old kids, if you show them two puppets and one's acting evil and the other one's good and you try to give them to them, 90-something percent of the time, they take the good one. They know that they push the evil one away. I have kids, so I know they push me away all the time. And um, (laughs) 
But there's something in us that resonates with this idea that there is truly evil out in the world. But Paul goes farther. This is where I'm going to start to sound like the guy on Samford and uh, just hang with me. Um, Paul is saying there is a real personal force behind the evil in the world. The devil. Satan. Again, you might think that's silly. Um, The Bible teaches us that there is a person that is responsible for evil in the world. And he is very active. um, Whether we want to believe it or not. I, I love this. I had a friend that used to always say, a cobra will strike. Whether you call him cobra or Mr. Cobra. You get the point there? Like... Whether you call him Satan or say you don't exist, he will still strike. He's still active in the world. He's very dangerous. And one of the reasons Paul is saying why he's so dangerous is because he knows he's defeated. He literally has nothing to lose. And if you're a believer, okay, so if you come here tonight, you identify with Jesus, you've trusted Jesus, and you would call yourself a Christian. uh, Satan can do nothing to bring you down to hell. Like he can't steal you away. He can't, at the last minute, snatch you out of Jesus' hand. But he will do everything he can to maim you along the way. He can't kill you, but he'll do everything that he can, anything that's possible for him to do. So Paul's saying, look, there's an enemy. He's real. He's active. It's the devil. This is a real person. But what is he doing? Uh, Look there in verse um, 13. Oh, wait. Sorry. Wherever it says, okay, verse 12, sorry. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul's saying, look, it's a spiritual battle. But when you hear spiritual, again, I've said this before, don't think, okay, that means not real. It means very real, but unseen. That, that, that Satan is fighting, he's wrestling against us in this spiritual place. And this is the same place that Paul said, look, this is where Christians are. When Christ comes and saves people, he brings them up to the heavenly places to be seated with him. And that's where Satan is acting. That's where he's attacking. Uh, Satan wants to attack your identity. He wants to attack your allegiance. He wants to attack your heart. It's like Iron Man. Um, you know, he has that cool thing, that cool shiny thing. And it does, but in addition to looking cool when he takes his shirt off, what, do you guys remember what it's there for? Does anyone know? Has anyone seen? To keep this shrapnel from growing into his heart. Thank you, Cookie. Um, Emily Sandy's going by Cookie now. Um, to keep the shrapnel from going to his heart. There is a real war waging in Iron Man's heart. Um, to keep the shrapnel out. And that is where the devil is active. He cares about your heart. He doesn't necessarily really care about giving you boils on your skin, okay? Um, he doesn't, I would say, uh, he's not primarily active in like possessing parts of a dorm, per se, or possessing your friend. Uh, he's not in all the places that you would imagine he would want to be. He's waging a war for your heart. He wants to get at you. He wants to get at your allegiance to Jesus. That is where he is working. And a friend of mine named Les Newsom, he makes a great point. He says, Satan lives to make you a supremely unhappy person. Everything in him wants to take your joy. He can't take you, but he can take your joy. He can take your assurance that you really belong to Jesus. And he would love to take that. 
he would love to make you a supremely unhappy person and lacking assurance. This is a warning to not be caught off guard. That this is really happening. To not zone out. Uh, If I can put it this way, a, a scenario that the devil would love would be for you to be happily married, okay? A couple of above average children. Um, living in a house, it's not super big, but it's kind of cute in like the Pinteresty way. Um, and you had those great pictures of like your whole family like wearing matching white shirts on the beach, right? And and you look good, and like you're pretty, and like you know you're pretty successful. You got a good job. It's what you always wanted, and for you to have absolutely no joy in Jesus, he would love that. That would be something that would delight him. Or for you to be building orphanages in Africa in the name of Christ and be the whole time thinking, you know, everyone back in America that's working regular jobs are like second class Christians. He would love that. That would delight him because he wants your heart. He doesn't care about the other crap. Satan wants your heart and he's active. So those are, those are the schemes of the devil. That's the enemy, right? But Paul comes and he says, you need to stand firm. And so here's this armor that you should put on. He talks about the armor of God. Look in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. It's like, okay, I get it. Like, I'm supposed to be standing up. I'm, I'm aware. Stand firm. Stand. Therefore, stand up. He wants us to put on this, this armor so that we won't be wobbly. He says, I want you to have a foundation. I want you to stand up straight and to be firm, to have a great foundation. Because uh, Satan's greatest trick, right, is, well, from the usual suspects, is convincing the world that he didn't exist, right? But, um, but his great trick that he's done from the beginning is cause people to doubt slightly. If you remember his first interaction in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, you remember what Satan said to Eve? Did God really say? It's like, it wasn't an out-and-out lie. He's like, are you sure? And suddenly she's on this sort of unstable ground. So that's what this armor is for, for us to stand firm. Um, before I come up here to talk, I always tie my shoes tight. Okay, It just feels like something I should do. Uh, I think because I uh, was rereading The Hobbit recently. And if you, if you remember, he doesn't wear, Bilbo doesn't wear shoes, obviously. Um, but before they like go on any battle or like start any new part of the journey or whatever, the first that it always says, and Bilbo t- tightened his belt. And when I was like, like, like after like chapter eight, you're like, how many more notches? I mean, it's just like so, so tight. <laughs> Paul says, stand therefore having fastened the, on the belt of truth. The belt, so he's talking about basically a Roman soldier. Underneath his clothing, he would wear this belt, and it held his sword, but also he could put his tunic in there and kind of tighten everything up so that if he needed to move, he could move quickly and everything would kind of hold together, kind of like maybe pulling up your underwear before you go running or something. Um, in a sense, and like not to be trite, but like God's truth, it says the belt of truth. God's truth is what kind of holds our pants up, right? It's what enables us to keep going. We have confidence that God's truth, that Jesus wins. That's our confidence. And this is the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, a Roman soldier would have put on this breastplate. It would have covered probably the front and the back. And what, what that was doing is protecting his most vital organs, right? And Paul calls that a, bre- a breastplate of righteousness. Um, I don't know where you're coming from. 
But there's nobody in this room that is a righteous person. There's nobody in this room that's even a good person by God's standards, uh, even myself. Uh, no one in here is morally good. Neither is anyone in here morally neutral. Okay? We're all insolent opponents of God outside of Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches us. Yet, God does something amazing in Christ. And when we put our faith in him, he comes and he gives us righteousness from Jesus. In a sense where we're not pure, we're not clean, we're not good. But Jesus is. And he comes and he gives us to us and we put it on. So that we have a righteousness. So it says this is a, it's a breastplate. So when, G, when uh, the, the devil, Satan, comes to tempt us, what he loves to say, and maybe you've felt this, is, you're a mess. God doesn't care about you. He would never care about you. Not someone like you. Maybe that other guy, maybe that other guy hasn't done those things. But you, not you, you're a mess. And with the breastplate of righteousness, we have a tool to stand firm to say, you're wrong. But, I mean, you know, you're right, I guess. I am a mess. But I'm wearing Jesus. Jesus stands in my place. Jesus gives me his righteousness. He has covered me. I have it. You can't push me around. You can't tell me I'm not good enough. Because God sees Jesus. And he tells me I'm ever good enough. Perfect son. And he says, for shoes, um, put on, as for your feet, as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, The Roman soldiers would have worn a sandal, which is kind of weird. To be imagined like in war with like chacos on. Um, I think you want a little something on the, on the top. Um, but the bottom of their sandals were like these, these triangulated, almost like cleats. So when they were in war, they couldn't be pushed back. They could dig in and the rank would hold. Um, that keeps us from being driven back. The good news of Jesus that we can push back against the devil and say, no, you can't push me around. And these things start to get a little bit redundant after a while. It's like the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And it's really like, you know, Paul's saying, for a belt, put on Jesus. For a breastplate, put on Jesus. You know, for a helmet, put on Jesus. For shoes, put on Jesus. Uh, For a shield, hold up Jesus. And really what he's saying is like, look, the devil's going to come at you. He's going to tempt you. And the only way to keep from being annihilated is to put on Jesus. And And I say all this... To get to one point, and that's a question arises for us, and it's like, okay, if Paul's telling me to, to do something, but it's put on Jesus, am I really doing anything? Right? Like, in the Christian faith, in the Christian life, am I really doing anything, or is Jesus just doing stuff? And that's a good question, because there's some of us in this room that are like, of course I'm doing something. I'm working hard. Functionally, we think, okay, there are certain things I need God's help with, but there are certain things I don't need God's help with. But I'm working hard. Uh, You know, maybe in the really bad parts of my life I need God, but otherwise I'm doing pretty good. I'm okay, and I love the battle. And we fight Satan's way. We want to conquer, right? We want to go in with power because we love control and power. That's some of us, right? Some of us love the work. Some of us love to earn it. Um. You're like, maybe that's not you. Uh, that person to me, when I talk to you, sounds like, I don't understand why they can't stop looking at porn. Just stop. Or like, I had my friends in high school and they were Christians. Um, but then we came to college and like, none of them go to church. and like, what's their deal? Okay. That has a familiar sound to me as a fellow self-righteous person of self-righteousness. 
Uh, I remember a story listening about um, a pastor, and uh, he was giving a lecture to a bunch of other pastors about how important it is to do family devotions, have time in the Bible with your family. And um, a lot of the guys there, like, if I had been there, I would have felt the same way, like, man, I suck at, like, being a leader for my family. I don't do family devotions that well. And so a lot of these guys were feeling very burdened by it. And uh, the guy that was in a book, the guy who was writing it, was said he got in a car with the guy afterward, and someone in the car said, what do you say to someone that's like, hey, it's everything I can do to like, get my kids out the door in the morning, much less have like 30 minutes of Bible time? And the guy said, um, I would tell that person that I'm the pastor of a, of a big church, and I have a lot of my, on my plate, and I almost guarantee that I have more on my plate than he does, and I still find time to do it, so therefore you should be able to. Um, that is the tone of, of course I can do it, right? That's the one, that's the one response, self-righteousness. The other, others of us are the opposite, though. When it comes to who's working here, me or Jesus, we go, I can't do anything. I'm totally dependent on Jesus. And by totally dependent on Jesus, they mean... I keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over and over again, and it's actually getting worse and never getting better. Um, but I'm just so weak. I just there's nothing. I'm powerless to it, and it just overtakes me. And one day, I just hope Jesus makes me strong enough to resist it. But until then, I guess I'm just going to keep getting battered around. That's the other side. The I can do it all, and the I can do nothing. But Paul is coming to us here and saying, "Look, something totally different in your life, in your Christian life, if you're a believer." In the spiritual warfare, it's one, when, when you're doing this fight, it's 100% God, but it requires 100% of your effort. It's divine action and human reaction, right? Divine operation and human cooperation. And some of you guys are using it because he's like, look, stand, put this stuff on. And some of you guys are going, wait, wait, wait. I chose RUF and not other ministries because RUF is the one that's all about God's grace doing it, Right? Uh, and now you're telling me that God expects me to do something. He expects me to do 100% of the work. Um, will you indulge me for a minute to explain two longish theological words? Some of you guys are really into that. Um, I think it will help us. The terms are justification and sanctification. Okay, I, Please don't zone out. Because if you have any interest in the Christian life, understanding these two things is vital. Okay? Justification is a one-time act that happens to a Christian wherein God looks at the blood of Jesus spilled on that person's behalf and says, you are justified in my sight. Which means your sins are forgiven and I accept you holy. You are whole and good and righteous and righteous in my sight. It's a one-time act. And that's 100% God. It has nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with me. Okay? That is all God's grace through the blood of Jesus. Justification. But a second doctrine is called sanctification. Sanctification is not a one-time act. Sanctification is a lifelong work. It's a work of God's grace. Wherein we become more and more like Jesus. Okay? This is what we call growing in holiness. right? Sanctification. And according to the scripture, that is 100% God's grace. And calls for 100% of our effort. Are you saved by God's grace? Yes, absolutely. Did you do anything to deserve your salvation if you're a Christian? No. That's good news if you're here and you're not a Christian. Because that means that no matter what you've done, you can come to Christ and be saved. Okay. 
So did you earn your salvation? No. Are you the one that ultimately makes your holiness and Christ-likeness happen? No. Are you called to be 100% about that work? Yes. Absolutely. And through the power of the gospel, we stand firm. But that doesn't mean that we just wait. Jesus is working through us and through our effort. Um, And look, it's really a question of your joy. Um, I I really struggled thinking through this until I heard a pastor named Brian Habig, who's my preaching crush, as Jen always says, um, and it is true, say, look, all this is is taking responsibility for your own joy. If you're a Christian and you want to grow and you want to have joy in Jesus and you want to have assurance that Jesus loves you, um, get about this work. Take responsibility for your own joy. Because look, the landscape is just covered with people that have been beaten down by the devil. That struggle every day knowing whether God loves them. Having any victory over their sin whatsoever. Because they refuse to get about it. To put on the armor um, of God. I, I, I was at a worship service, and sorry, all these illustrations are very churchy, but um, I was at a worship service for RUF Campus Ministers, and the guy came up, and he was about to administer the Lord's Supper, and I just rem- I will never forget him taking the cup in his hand and saying, look, y'all, better men than me have come up to this table and have since fallen away. They've ruined their marriages. They've ruined their kids. They've torn down their church. Be diligent. Come to Christ for grace. Uh, take responsibility for your own joy. It is possible. Just let me put this category in your mind. For you to be a real Christian that cannot be cast out of heaven and be miserable and not be growing because you haven't taken seriously what God says. Take hold of these things and grow. Uh, you'll be like the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? You've got your arms cut off. Your legs cut off, and you're like, it's just a flesh wound. Uh, but you can do nothing. Um, the devil would love nothing more than for you to constantly be biting your fingernails and wondering, does Jesus love me? But he promises assurance. Okay, so the winning tactics, quickly. We saw the enemy, the armor, and now the winning tactics. Every piece of armor that, that uh, Paul has talked about has been defensive. We can't do anything with it. We just wards off darts and arrows and swords and everything. But then he comes and he tells us about two weapons. Okay? Uh, he says there in uh, verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the, in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So he says, okay, I finally got something for you to do. I've got some weapons for you to use, okay? It's not just defenses. I'm going to let you do some warfare. And here's the weapons. You guys ready? It's going to be real exciting. It's going to be the Bible and praying. Go get them, team. You can do it. Uh, it's not exciting. I'm kind of like, when I read that, I'm like kind of let down, right? Because I'm like, but, so what you're saying is to fight, and I get involved in the battle, really what I'm doing is saying, I'll pray to someone else to help you. Okay? And I'll give you the words of someone else that might help you. I say theologically that I love that. I love nothing more than when I give you a piece of advice and it helps you. And it really has nothing to do with the Bible or me praying for you. Like, I love that. 
Okay? That's why I live for that. Because I love a taste of the glory, right? But you want to know what it tastes like. Yeah? <laughs> I just want a taste of the glory. And God's saying, look, I'm giving you prayer and my word. And the fact of the matter is, these are both weapons that, like, unless God does something, nothing will happen. They seem like the most inconsequential weapons ever. I'll pray for you. They don't feel like they're the last thing you can say. I can't do anything positive and productive for you, but I'll pray for you. Or here, let's open scripture together. And when you begin to start feeling like, this makes me powerless, God's like, yes, exactly. You're starting to get it. I don't want you to be powerful. I want me to be powerful. I don't want you to have a taste of the glory. It's my glory, and I'm going to do it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you tools and weapons, and when you go out and use them, I'm like, I can read the Bible to you. I don't know what God's going to do. And he's like, yes, exactly, because I'm going to work there. Because I am going to show myself good and powerful. Paul says a beautiful thing when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The way of the devil is breaking down the front door, power, domination, conquering. The way of Jesus is weakness, dependence. Um, It's unimpressive. And he goes, exactly. Gospel-driven, Jesus-dependent weakness is strength that tears down strongholds and beats the enemy. Uh, look, this is the last message we're going to do in Ephesians. And uh, I actually chose to do Ephesians for two reasons. Well, I mean, it's great. I mean, everyone loves Ephesians, okay. I think. Um, the first reason I picked to do Ephesians was because I honestly believe and have the conviction that God is at work chiefly in his church. And I don't know how much any of you care about that. But I, I just wanted to give you a taste and just make an appeal to you to love Jesus' church because he wants to grow you there and he's at work there. And it's the only place he said, I'm going to be at work. So that was the first reason why we chose Ephesians. Because I, 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 I care about you guys now. I really care about you guys in 30 years. Like, and I don't want you to be falling away. Uh, I want you to be in the church. Um, so that was, the, that was the first reason. But the second reason I chose Ephesians was because... It's about little mundane things, little mundane relationships. There's something in our hearts that is off kilter because our hearts always look for impressive big things. Um, That comes at the expense of our own hearts. And that's what I wanted to pitch to you guys this semester. The devil, you think that he wants to get like the big impressive things and he's just tricking you. He's at work in the margins of your heart, in the small places where you would never think that he would be, that the places you never thought about. This semester, um, the beginning of the semester and the end of last semester, I had to repent a lot to my wife um, because um, I never thought it would happen so quickly that I would worship this job. Um, and there's enough of you that I could stay busy doing it. And on this, on the one hand, you think... Choosing to, to love your job over your family, like, that's a big deal. And, like, that seems like it would be big. But what happens is it's like, 
I could just spend like 30 more minutes because like they're in a crisis and like they'll be okay at home. That's what it looks like. And that's what I want to pitch to you. That is where the devil is at work. And don't be fooled into thinking that he's at, at, at like in your job. No, he's at work in the tiny little ways that you neglect your first calling to your family. Um, but it's not just n- negative. Satan wants to come and steal your joy, and he's going to do it by nickel and diming all the mundane parts of your life. But Jesus ever lives to give you joy and to give you assurance uh, and to give you stability to give you real deep and abiding joy that sustains you when someone leaves you or when your church falls apart or when something terrible happens to you, a friend dies, a family member dies, a deep and abiding joy. And he doesn't necessarily always do it in the big exciting parts of your life. He does it in the mundane 30 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Um, And that's how you know that he loves you. He wants to meet you there in the mundane parts of your life. And until the gospel begins to change that, begins to change how you deal with your roommate, begins to change how you deal with someone that offended you, and basically you just want to give them the finger under the table and never talk to them again and go on with your life because you have real friends. Until Jesus begins to get in there and you allow him in there, you're never going to feel that joy. He wants to give you joy. Do you want to receive it? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are good all the time. And um, that you care so desperately about us that not uh, a dusty corner of our heart will you leave um, to the devil. Lord, give us true love for you that it might pervade everything that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.